2: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, Dr. Matt Lamb, the epidemiologist so nice, Andrew and I, had him on twice. Matt is an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Columbia University Medical Center and returning champion to the show because he's really good at helping me break down insanely complicated things into snackable, digestible chunklets for the layperson. And if you, the listener, are not an epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist, virologist, or someone whose last name may rhyme with mouchie, then you, my friend, are likely a layperson who needs snackable, digestible chunklets of layperson information. And so it's time to enjoy some more What the fuck is happening with COVID? Questions and answers right now here on the show. Enjoy. Matt Lamb, thanks for coming back on the show. The uh, epidemiologist, so nice. We had him on twice in this crazy burning world of COVID. It's just nice to be able to lean into a professional expert epidemiologist to, to chime in, possibly not answer the questions I proffer to you because you're not a virologist but feel free to tell me that if i <laughs> profoundly give you a conundrum that uh, it's not something you can answer but i'm, I'm prefacing our our uh, sort of a phase 2 marvel phase 2 conversation around the fact that i myself tested positive for antibodies twice on the same test cuz i didn't believe it and the reason i didn't believe it was because my wife and children tested negative for antibodies and all tested negative for the COVID swab test. Do you, Dr. Matt Lamb, have (laughs) any theoretical physical ideas as to how the hell that's possible?
0: Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me back. Um, So, you know, my work as an epidemiologist is really focusing on, you know, big numbers. The idea of, you know, on average, what can we expect? So on average, we would expect... Um, If you actually have antibodies that, you know, you're going to test positive on one of these antibody tests a certain percentage of the time. But we don't know if you're going to be the person who is in the lower percentage of that. It's the same for if you test positive and you really don't have them. So we kind of know really well on average what's going on. We're not very good at identifying for a given individual why something idiosyncratic is going on. And so I think in your case, there's a few possible explanations of why you would have developed antibodies consistent with the antibodies for coronavirus and your family wouldn't. Number one idea would be, well, you didn't transmit it to them. Either the amount of virus that you got was fairly low in terms of the amount of dose that, um, you know, assuming that you actually uh, had coronavirus. I didn't hear you if you actually got the swab. For that or not
2: yes i did Um, that was negative
0: okay that was a negative and you got it at the same time though
2: i got the negative swab between the first test and the second test because it was just so improbable that i tested positive in the first place
0: yeah okay so i mean what the swab is going to tell you is really if you have the infection that hasn't cleared right now and so um you know it wouldn't surprise me if you would have tested positive for antibodies and then negative for the swab. Because they're really kind of testing two different things. One is is a little bugger living and multiplying in your body. Is the virus living in there? That's what the swabs going to tell you. The antibody test is going to tell you have you fought off uh, the virus in a way that your body is going to now recognize it, hopefully for a while into the future. But you know, going back to the original question, like how the heck could you have gotten this and not transmitted it to your family? You know, there's a lot we don't know, and basic epi principles suggest that you know there's really a few things that are going to govern the likelihood of transmission and uh, we have a control over a lot of those we know that this is a respiratory illness the predominant mode of transmission of this is from person to person through you know coughing sneezing getting onto somebody else even though you hear that there's all these other possible ways of transmitting it going forward but really the dominant way we think is through contact with airborne particles if you happen to have a low level of an illness, you could have triggered an immune response in your body, but you might not have been sick enough to transmit to your family, particularly if you were careful. Once you started, you know, feeling a little tickle in your nose or feeling something in the back of your throat, if you kind of quarantined yourself away from your family, that's going to really reduce their probability of getting the transmission. So there's a possibility that that's what's happened because you tested, you got two tests I would say that the likelihood that you're a double false positive is pretty low.
2: Yeah, I've learned so much down this crazy rabbit hole as hashtag not a doctor. And (laughs) my my father's best friend, my uncle, is a world renowned genomicist for for 60 years, and he, he lives in that particular science realm, not in yours or virology. But his take was that it just seemed to be the ultimate mystery that could possibly pave the way for just more questioning as to how someone can, with all probability's sake, clearly not have two double negatives. And yet my children and my wife did not have it. Yeah, we don't go around our house like spitting in each other's faces. No one had a cold or a flu in the last eight weeks. And we all teach ourselves, cover your face. So is it possible that just normal sanitary human behavior is responsible for my not transmitting it as I was asymptomatic?
0: I mean, I think that this is the really unanswerable question, at least from my field, because my field, again, we can assess, like, on average, how many people do we expect average infected person to infect doing business as usual. But it's a probability game. So we think in terms of risk to say, well, what's going to increase your risk or decrease your risk of transmitting? It's never going to go to zero, and it's never going to go all the way up to 100%. What we think is that if you stay six feet away from people, And if you're like a religious hand washer and, you know, you're not coughing into each other's mouths, those are the things that, you know, if you do this over and over again, that is going to dramatically reduce the likelihood of transmitting this uh, to somebody else. It's not going to make it zero, though. And so I think that that's, you know, it's quite possible that that's what what happened. Uh, The other idea is, you know, there's a difference between, and this is what we don't understand right now, is how much virus you have to have in order to be able to transmit it to somebody else. So there's a difference between your body recognizing the virus and developing antibodies for it and having enough in your body to be able to actually transmit to somebody else. I mean, we don't know enough, at least I'm not aware of studies that know enough to kind of see what that magic number is or if there even is a magic number.
2: The COVID-ometer.
0: Right, so that would be uh, something that you could buy on Amazon because all the stores are closed, right? Clearly.
1: So. I know Andrew <laughs> has a litany of questions to ask as well. I do, we've been talking about the trees and the ways in which trees can infect one another i suppose just to destroy that metaphor as quickly as possible but uh, <laughs> but let's talk about the forest which is where a lot of your focus is colombia has a model that it uses in order to make forecasts that actually stands next to several other models that predominate within the media and within the way that we are thinking about the progress of this problem would you mind talking a little bit about Columbia's model relative to other models that are out there?
0: Um, yeah, I could talk a little bit. I don't work on this model. So um, this is a model that colleagues in the department I'm in work on. And I think the models are not fundamentally different from each other. So like the four or five models that you see in the news, uh, that you see in the IHME, uh, the government website, the models aren't fundamentally different from each other. Where the areas of disagreement are, tend to be from you know a few things it's just these are predictions the models that we have are using the information that we have to make the best guess about likely scenarios none of the models are going to be correct in the sense that like that's not the goal of the models the goal of the models isn't going to tell you exactly how many people will get infected if you do this or don't do this intervention the goal is to kind of show you relative changes In what would be a reasonable estimate for how you might want to prioritize one intervention over the next? In addition to how do we know when we're kind of over the worst part, at least of this phase of the epidemic? So really, like the, the model that is developed at Columbia University has been built in part by people who spent their career or are spending their career modeling influenza. And so I think that it's a pretty good fit in the sense of the expertise there. Because influenza, uh, you know, like coronavirus, it's pretty contagious and it's primarily transmitted from person to person in a way that uh, depends heavily on the amount of time you're spending with individuals. And so I think without going into like, too many details, I-, I think that the models that are developed by individuals with expertise in respiratory illnesses are the ones in which they've really kind of thought through the assumptions of transmissibility that seem to be pretty similar to what we're seeing with, you know, the real data as we're collecting it
1: going forward. That's very interesting. There was a release at the end of the first week in May from Columbia in which uh, the models are said to suggest that there's going to be some kind of a rebound of COVID-19 in late May. Do you want to comment on that at all?
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think the basic idea is that everybody you know in january december everybody was susceptible and because the way in which we have kind of flattened the curve isn't through getting people to get sick and recover and develop immunity but to prevent people at least as many as possible from getting uh, infected in the first place the idea is social distancing or quarantining and all of these kind of extreme measures you can't do it forever once you start relaxing these, um, there's, we're basically introducing susceptible people back to interact with infected people. And so I think that that's the basic premise of these models is you're introducing this whole new population of people who aren't yet sick. And if there are people who are infectious, they have all these other people to have contacts with. And so this is kind of where the basic predictions are, are suggesting that there might be a new wave. The size of the wave really depends on what people do in terms of how people have changed their behavior kind of separate from these kind of social policy enforcements, in addition to how quickly municipalities would roll back any kind of relaxations of the restrictions. And so really, again, these models are meant to say, well, what's going to happen if a certain percentage of the population becomes more lax in terms of how much they venture out into the world? Or what happens if a certain percentage of the population stops wearing masks This is going to be the consequences of that. And it's policies people's job to say, well, how do we prevent those consequences from happening? Or how do we understand, you know, what is going to be the best balance of what may be around for a little bit longer than I think people hoped?
1: Right. Of course, and perhaps to a degree that none of us could have anticipated, there has developed a very strong messaging program from various sectors of the political world in this country that want to address the concept that COVID-19 is a hoax, and then heading further down the spectrum toward something like reason, the notion that social distancing was an unnecessarily strict program that was imposed on the country uh, in a way that damaged the economy unnecessarily, some pointing to Sweden. As an example of a place where social distancing rules were not imposed and uh, consequences were not realized, to what degree do you think that scenario is an accurate depiction of reality?
0: For the first question, um, you know, I've been taught um, my wife works on climate change, and I've been taught the best way to deal with things that are completely divorced from reality is just not to comment on them. So I'm not going to comment on the idea of hoaxes. Um, I think it's just you know nonsense. In terms of the idea that the response on a municipality level was an overreaction, I think that you're getting into a question of like what is an acceptable number of deaths in that case. So if an acceptable number of deaths would have been 20 times higher, possibly, uh, then it was an overreaction. I just don't think that the individuals who are saying that this is an overreaction really believe that. I think it's more kind of backwards thinking where you have a policy or a political bent in mind, and you're trying to back-calculate a justification for being upset with individuals who you tend to be skeptical of. So I think my reasoning, and I'll get to the Sweden question because I think that's a more interesting question in terms of a question. It's always very easy to say that social distancing was an overreaction um, because the whole goal of social distancing was to make it appear like it's an overreaction because if you don't social distance, you're going to have way more context. We can predict from the modelers the consequences of that. That's 2 million deaths in the U.S., probably. And so we can compare what's going to happen now to that kind of 2 million estimate, uh, which is a decent benchmark of whether or not social distancing, I think, was useful or required in this time. Uh, in terms of Sweden, I think the interesting thing about Sweden is that it seems like, at least I think there is today, there was an article in You know, CNN or one of the papers had found that the percentage of individuals in Sweden who have antibody positive was like somewhere in the range of 5 to 10 percent similar to the United States. And so I think the interesting thing about Sweden is that while there was maybe no policies that were preventing individuals wholesale from gatherings and all these other things, it appears that, uh, and I think this would be something useful to check with the mobility numbers I think that people in Sweden actually took pretty substantial measures individually to kind of achieve the same goal. And the question is, like, is that something that's replicable in a different type of country that might be larger or less homogenous,
2: for example? Back with our guest after the break. Matt, I want to go back to something I'm kind of fixated on, which is something you refer to as how much antibody do you need to have something happen? And I was told, again, not a doctor, that that's called a viral load. Is that the correct terminology?
0: Yeah, it's a viral load. It's like we're really kind of boring when we name things. Um, right. So, this is the virology.
2: So, that's the COVID yeah. COVIDometer that we have to look at. Um, yeah.
0: So, how, to, you know, how much virus is per amount of blood?
2: Right. So, is that a figure outable thing that has been precedented? And it, are we on a way to figure out if I have antibodies now? What?
0: So, there's kind of two separate things. And then I'm going to kind of tell you when I'm hedging into like, this is not my area of expertise. But, right. um, viral load measures how much virus is in your body. I know about this because a lot of my research focuses on HIV-AIDS, and we use viral load routinely as a measure of just how much virus is in your blood. This is how we determine if you're HIV positive. This is what we're measuring when somebody does the swab for the COVID test, how much virus is actually uh, in your blood or in your nose in that case. So what viral load is a measure of is how concentrated the virus is per amount of blood. The idea is basically if you have a lot more virus in your blood, it's worse for you because your immune system has to work harder. If your immune system has to work harder and you have trouble getting oxygen into your heart, that's going to be something that's going to make recovery from having a lot of virus difficult. So this is kind of one reason why there's speculation why individuals who have certain pre-existing conditions focusing on cardiovascular complications seem to have a harder time fighting this off. It's because if you have a lot of virus, your body has to work harder to get it out. That's what the viral load is measuring. There's an equivalent. When you get a a certain kind of antibody test, there's really kind of two general types of antibody tests. Again, I'm not a virologist, but I know that there's two (laughs) types of antibody tests in general. One is kind of like a pregnancy test. It tells you, do you have them or do you not have them? That's not going to help you assess how much antibody that you might have at a given period of time in your blood. It's just going to say if it's there or not. The second type of test is able to put some kind of number to that. And so that's the one where you might be able to get some units of antibodies per unit of something else, per unit of blood, let's say. The million-dollar question, and this is kind of the question that a lot of the vaccine trials are trying to uh, focus on, is what the number is that's sufficient for you to fight off a new infection so that you don't become infected. And so that's kind of the key thing that we don't know the answer to yet. I think that virologists, you know, not me, have an idea, um, you know, of how to figure out that answer. And that's kind of what some of these clinical trials that are either using blood plasma as a measure to see if that conveys immunity. If I took your blood, for example, since you now have antibodies, would that prevent infection in me or would it be able to treat me if I'm in the early stages of having sars All of these different trials are going on in order to try to get at what is this magic number that you need to have above in order to be immune or at least immune for a while. But I don't think we're there yet.
2: It sounds like chicken and the egg because, I mean, this rush to market with the FDA emergency authorizations and all these (sighs) tests out there, and there are spit tests and swab tests and blood tests and whatever. I, I guess the question I can attempt to formulate here is do they need to figure out the minimum viral antibody load to give to someone to get the vaccine? Or do they need to? Should they be doing blood tests now that have the antibodyometer in them?
0: So there are blood tests now that have the antibodyometer in them. And you might see this if you see something called like an ELISA test. Basically, what it does is it basically kind of creates a copy of something, you know, COVID looking. It either could be like the little spike that gives it its name, or it could be like the actual genetic information inside the virus. It creates kind of a version of that that um, they think that your antibodies are going to bind to. And so they can see how many antibodies bind to this kit that they're building. The more antibodies that bind to it, the higher your kind of antibody load would be. So there are tests out there. What scientists are doing right now is they're trying to do longer-term studies, which is why we don't know this yet, to say, well, what happens if somebody has like an antibody level of one? What proportion of those people get reinfected versus somebody who has an antibody level of a million? What proportion of those people get reinfected? And so somewhere along the line, we're going to say, well, you need to have at least a viral load of this in order to have a reduction in the probability of getting infected of a certain percentage. And we're going to kind of use that to say, well, that's kind of the, the level that, you know, we're going to look for clinically to say, well, you're protected at least for a little bit. The other thing that's important to think about is it's not like if you develop immunity, that it's just like an on and off switch between when your body can fight off, you know, the next coronavirus or not. Your body tends to like ramp up your antibodies And then it kind of like slowly tapers off over time, kind of like my intelligence as I get older. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think at that point in time, I'm still a little bit smart. So I'm smart enough to do some things now, but not as smart as I was five years ago. It's kind of the same with the antibodies. After a certain amount of time, uh, your body might not have enough to fight off the infection.
2: And that's a perfect segue to the word vector, which no one really understands because it's like a science wonky word and they're not not schoolhouse rocking this to the average person. I, (laughs) I, I think my definition is the probability that you could kill someone.
0: So a vector in my epi mind is just anything that transmits disease. So we call mosquitoes vectors. You might call it like a deer tick, a vector of Lyme disease. You can call me a vector of coronavirus if you wanted. Um, Although most people refer, you know, think about vectors as like non-humans, either like things or animals, mostly.
2: Yeah, so I guess this then opens up the conversation. My daughter watches a YouTube channel called Sci Show for Kids, and another one called It's Okay to Be Smart, and they did a whole like kid version of coronavirus about the summer coming up, and it turns out that when it's hotter and when there's more moisture in the air, something about the oil that covers the coronavirus makes it a little less transmittable, especially if you're outdoors and there's a little wind and you're near the ocean, and Are there any probability models at this point? Knowing that your antibodyometers can be N of 1 for any one person, is this just a giant global experiment?
0: Yes, it's a giant global experiment. But yes, also, there are people who are studying each kind of little part of it. So there's a lot of work that has been done in a lot of other transmissible diseases that seem to suggest that there's some temperature or weather effect. This temperature or weather effect does not seem to be large enough to prevent an epidemic on its own. I think that that's what I can say about it. There does seem to be some support for the idea that this virus might not transmit quite as well when it's not as dry in the air outside. But the people who have been following this also tend to put some caveats on that, where this is kind of like an order of magnitude less important than anything else, like social distancing, like the number of uh, susceptible people who are coming into contact with infectious people, like continuing to wash your hands. So I think the idea that anybody would be banking on the weather to just magically make this go away, I don't think that that's well supported. I think what might be supported is there's going to be a lot of things that need to work together in order to reduce the number of transmissions so that the number of people infected today is fewer than the number of yesterday. This weather thing may play a fairly minor role in that, is my understanding.
1: And to wrap this up, Matt, looking back and looking forward, has anything surprised you about the way in which this has played out in the United States and in the wider world? And and the related... Mirror question to that is what do the seasons that we have in front of us look like in your mind, knowing what you know about human behavior and about what we've learned about how this is transmitted? What does summer look like? What does fall look like? What does winter look like?
0: Uh, yeah, so the first one, I would be very um, arrogant if I would say that nothing has surprised me because like this is crazy, right? And I think it's it's unprecedented for a lot of reasons. Looking back, the thing that's still the biggest, failure, at least for our country, that I can think of, is not anticipating the need for surveillance testing early on. This is kind of the first step in a public health approach where you try to stop the problem before it becomes out there. And for whatever reason, it wasn't done. And it was done better in some countries than other countries. No country has done perfect because this has been a really crazy illness to fight, But I think what this to me suggests is, you know, going forward, we have to kind of think about reintroducing the idea of, you know, a rainy day fund, kind of like spending a little bit of our government capital on planning for things that seem unlikely, but catastrophic. And I think that this is the thing. What I think has surprised me in a positive way the most is um, people are doing the right thing. And I think that that's, uh, sometimes hard to model for it. even think about. People, by and large, are overwhelmingly reducing the number of people that they come into contact with, overwhelmingly respecting social distancing. You can see that from publicly available, you know, just like how much your phone moves on a given day in the aggregate. People have reduced the amount that they're moving by like 50, 60, 70%. It's going up a little bit, and we can't imagine that people are going to stay isolated forever because people tend to like, you know, each other. But, you know, I think that the idea that people can actually make individual change and hopefully make it sustainable for a greater good, I think that that was, it's really heartening to me. In terms of what's going to happen, you know, I think a lot of what epidemiologists think about are kind of like these more distal relationships so we just kind of crashed the economy, the world economy, over the last couple of months. This is gonna have a lot of consequences. Um, this is also a time to really think about what we want things to look like. And I think that that's more of a political question than a science question. But you know, sticking to like the epi, what I would imagine is that we're gonna see flare-ups of this illness. I don't know, and I actually wish I could better predict if I think that there's gonna be an actual peak like a secondary transmission peak uh, in the fall as relaxations are um, restricted. I imagine there will be one, but I don't know the magnitude of it. Um, and I think that that's going to be the million-dollar question. Like, what is normal going to look like? And I feel like this is kind of outside of public health or epidemiology. What normal is going to look like in the in the winter, I have no idea. Like, I don't even know if, you know, I'm going to be able to send my kids uh, to any school in the fall, like in New
2: York. So. <laughs> Well, on that happy note, <laughs> I think this concludes episode two of our God knows how many episode series with Dr. Matthew Lamb, because in the wellspring of Jeopardy questions that are unanswerable, I always admire doctors who prove their doctors by just saying they don't know. Not just I'm not a virologist. So uh, Dr. Matt Lamb is an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Columbia University Medical Center. Thanks for joining us again. More to come and stay safe.
0: Thanks a lot. Take
1: care. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern.